king was I saw that I had no hope. And then I went to court. That is when I sued my brothers. Rachel Career's father owned a large tea farm in western Kenya. It supported her family. But when village customs blocked her from getting her fair share, she decided to fight back. Her story is just ahead. I'm Rena Nainen on today's episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a series from Foreign Policy. We explore ways to achieve gender equality. Today, we're looking at how securing property rights could be an important step for women trying to achieve income security. In today's story, we're profiling a woman who had to sue her own family to get access to her inheritance. As you'll hear, Rachel Career, like Agnes Etole, whom we heard from last episode, had to challenge not only laws, but deeply entrenched patriarchal social norms. That was in order to provide for herself and her children. And just like Agnes, Rachel's fight wasn't just for justice. It was for survival. As she explained to me, she was in a marriage that had deteriorated beyond repair. Her husband was drinking too much and was mismanaging money. He was a drunk, and he could not afford to pay school fees for the kids. Rachel felt trapped and wanted out. She decided to move back to her home village and turn to her father for support. Her plan was to farm a piece of the family's ancestral land. But that was a plan her brothers didn't like. My brothers told me, even if you are suffering in your house, in your matrimonial home, do not come here. Just continue staying there. Do not come home. So they tried to evict you from your parents' house. There were several fights that led to you going to jail. How did your dad react to all of this? I was jailed four times. My father always went there to get me out of jail. He also promised me that I was going to stay home and I would keep my piece of land. I was surprised because I knew that he was always afraid of my brothers and he didn't say that he wanted me to stay home and give me a piece of land before. But when he came to release me from jail, he said that. If all of this sounds crazy, that Rachel's brothers were able to get their sister arrested just for attempting to have equal rights to their ancestral land, you have to better understand local Kenyan customs and practices in many villages and how it relates to marriage. Essentially, once the woman is married, her family and her property are tied to her husband, and she has no right to claim her father's land. Because Rachel was not formally divorced from her husband at the time, her brothers were able to successfully have her jailed. In Kenya, there are laws to prevent this kind of thing from happening to women, but it's riddled with loopholes. So in practical terms, many disputes of this nature get settled by the village elders. That's who Rachel turned to next. And they offered her a deal, one that still favored her brothers. When I called the village elders, the village elders told my brothers and my father also that they should give me only one acre. It was not supposed to be the same amount of land that my brothers were getting. They told me that I was supposed to get that piece of land and that I was going to choose whether to stay here or go back to my matrimonial home. But I would still own the one acre piece of land. What made you have that fighting spirit? A lot of women would have said, okay, okay, 
the society isn't going to allow me to own this. What kept you going? What gave me courage was knowing that my father was a rich man. He was not a poor man. He had property and lots of it. So that is why I had courage that I was also going to get this property because he was giving it to my brothers and not me. So I asked myself, why not me? What happened after your father passed away in 2012? When my father passed away, I had not gone into court and I was about to go to court. So when he died, I saw that I had no hope. And then I went to court. That is when I sued my brothers. How did you go about doing this? How did you find lawyers? How did you find the money? I called my clan elders and they came here. When my brothers completely rejected to give me land and decided that they were not going to give it to me, it's the elders that advised me that I was supposed to go and look for a lawyer. I was supposed to go to court so that the court could settle this because they couldn't. They could not settle it themselves. That is when I started the legal process. Someone advised me to call FIDA, the Federation of Women Lawyers in Kenya. They were the ones that assisted me and they got me a lawyer for free. I did not pay anything. The case wound up being one of the first to test the power of the new law in Kenya. In 2013, the country enacted something known as the Matrimonial Property Act. This new law sought to correct inheritance inequalities, especially as it pertained to daughters who were married. When the judge told my brothers to write a submission and give it to them and say who was going to benefit from that land, they wrote that none of the daughters were going to get the land. So when the judge used the act to ensure that all the sisters or all the siblings were going to get an equal share, so the matrimonial act actually played a good role in ensuring that we got justice because it made sure that all of us all the children of our father were given an equal piece of land, each of us. So in 2014, a high court judge ruled in your and your sister's favor, but it took another five years before you finally won your case. Tell me about the moment when you finally won the case. What did you feel? What was that like? I was so happy. It was a big relief, such a big relief. And I thought to myself, I didn't know that I was also going to live like all the other people around me. What is life like today for you, Rachel? I'm so happy nowadays. I can even go to the bank and receive my own money. It's pretty remarkable because in most Western countries, a woman being able to go to the bank and receiving her own money is not a big deal. What that's like for a woman who doesn't have access to capital or money or property, why was that so important? In this part of the world, where a woman cannot have her own money or her own capital or earn money, it's not a good life. And I used to cry about it. This is what has made so many women very poor and dependent on their husbands. So how do you think ultimately this lawsuit changed your life? Ultimately, when I won this case, I've been able to actually settle down in my life and earn a living. I own land. I can rear cattle. I have milk. Through the tea farm that my father left, I'm able to earn money. And that is a big difference. It changed my life. 
So if you read the actual 2013 Matrimonial Property Act, the whole point of it is to make what Rachel's brothers were trying to do illegal. The law plainly states that denying women equal access to property is against the law. But if the act is so clear, why did it take five years to get things settled? The short answer is that what gets legislated nationally and practiced locally can be two very different things in Kenya. We talk about how to close that gap after the break. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Ninen. Think about all the obstacles Rachel Career had to overcome just to get the same rights as her brothers. She had to suffer through multiple jailings, elders who resisted giving her full rights, and a lawsuit that dragged on for half a decade, even though the national law was clearly on her side. This all speaks to how hard it can be to change cultural standards and norms especially when it pertains to tearing down patriarchal structures that impede women's ability to be financially independent. To learn more about this long-term effort to bring about change in Kenya, our senior producer, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum, spoke with Abrina Manji, a native Kenyan. She's currently a professor of land law and development at Cardiff University in Wales. Professor Manji discussed with Laura the evolution of women's rights in Kenya and the challenges that remain in implementing new gender equality laws. So after a couple of decades of struggle for a new constitution in 2010, Kenya inaugurated a, a new constitution. And in that constitution, importantly, there is an entire chapter dedicated to land issues. That's important because... It was seen as a great achievement that for the first time land had constitutional status, that we had a whole chapter of the constitution in 2010 that set out the classifications of land, what types of land there were in the country and who had the responsibility to manage them. And so that was seen as a significant achievement. In some regards, it is a significant achievement. The constitution sought to set out really clearly who governs land and what are the institutions that are responsible for making decisions about how land is administered, for example, the community or institutions such as the newly created National Land Commission. In relation to gender, the constitution attempted to take a progressive approach and to guarantee women's rights over land in their own right, and to set out the rights of women in relation to land, particularly when it came to rights on property acquired during marriage. The difficulty, of course, as you'll appreciate, is that having these very high-level constitutional provisions is quite a different thing to making those rules a reality for women 
in their daily lives. And there are many barriers which we could discuss to that happening. Yeah. What are, what are some of those barriers? It's important to recognize that certainly in the Eastern African contexts, women will often rely on inheritance as a way to access land. But if we're talking about ordinary women, and this is important, this is the vast majority of women don't have access to simply buying and selling land as private owners, private actors. Most women will rely on inheritance. So, for example, they may rely on inheritance from their family, their parents. And at that stage, there are really significant forces trying to counter that change and trying to claim that you know the, the proper customary law position is that women can't inherit land in their own rights and that given the way in which marriage works, a woman is expected to depart to the marital family into whom she's been married and there to gain some access to land that she no longer has any claim over her natal family's land. This is very important, these practical barriers to women gaining access to land are very important. And what that requires is for the courts to make progressive decisions, obviously, but also for a certain amount of work to explain what a progressive constitution aims to do, that it aims to get away from this idea that women don't inherit land, don't hold land in their in their own names. So could you just briefly explain what is customary law? What's its, what's its relationship to national law and how the Constitution and the Matrimonial Property Act and the Land Succession Act, this is the one that dealt with inheritance, how all those interacted with customary law? Mm-hmm. So customary law can be described as, as the laws governing issues such as, as marriage and inheritance, what we might call personal laws. Uh, they are the laws of a given community. They are not written or recorded. We see that reasonably often. Customary law has many progressive ideas, very progressive ideas in relation to the way in which a community holds land, but more importantly, the way in which a community is regarded as a steward over land. But in relation to gender, we often find customary law used as justification for dispossessing women, even though, in truth, those laws may not actually amount to barriers to women's participation in land, but they're interpreted as such because the custodians of that interpretation are often patriarchal interests. What we've had since the 70s are a number of progressive court judgments which have tried to whittle away at the more patriarchal provisions in customary law. And so down the years, we've had a number of jurisdictions in which the courts have ruled that women can indeed inherit land. They can indeed hold land, even though custody rules purport to say that they can't. And the way in which the courts have argued this is that because of international conventions, such as the Convention for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, more progressive rules related to women's land rights trump restrictive or patriarchal customary rules. 
my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the Constitution and specifically the acts around marital property and around inheritance made exceptions for customary law. So essentially they said, this is the state law, but if customary law rules in another way, we'll allow it. And so that's why there are all these loopholes. And that's why women are in this precarious situation, because actually at the constitutional level, there are exceptions for customary law. Is that correct? The process of making a constitution is one that's very contested. And there are several places in the constitution in which the more more progressive position didn't win out. In other words, if you look at the history of the making of the constitution in Kenya, there have been many gains, but there were also really significant conservative interests who sought to water down some of the greater rights that women stood to gain in the constitution, including on same-sex relationships, including on reproductive rights. And you won't be surprised then that personal laws, marriage laws, inheritance laws, etc., which govern women's relationship with property, were also a target of this more conservative approach. What we see is that there is, there's never a kind of one overall outright win. The opposition that is ranging against a woman like Rachel Career is really powerful, very well organized. Male kin will do this and they will make the battle protracted. So in her case, that was for, for me something that really stood out was how protracted this was and how determined she had to be in order to get that win. Right. So, you know, we were talking a lot about the courts and how you know women had to fight a lot in the courts for redress around land rights. But I mean, I found this really interesting that despite all these constitutional changes, the land ownership rate for women in Kenya is somewhere between around 1% and 5%. It's pretty low. And it's a number that hasn't really increased that much since the constitutional changes. So I want to understand from you why you think that is. The important thing to note here is that a question about women's ownership of land privileges the idea of ownership. And I think we need to ask a slightly different question. The important thing to remember in the Kenyan context, actually, is that our Gini coefficient on land, that is the measurement of inequality on land, has grown since the constitution in 2010. In other words, there's significant land concentration. Very few people own vast amounts of land. So if you ask a question about ownership of land by women, you're asking about a very small group of women, middle class women, wealthy women. It's the wrong question. The really important question is not who, how do women own land or how many women own land, but how many women have access to land, which is secure access. In other words, how many women can rely on land as a resource to provide for their families, to provide some food, to perhaps sell a little bit of extra food products, for example, in the market, how many women can rely on land as a supplement to their main income. So it's often the case that a family will have a formal income in the city, for example, they'll be urban residents, but they will also rely because their urban wages are so depressed that they will not actually keep a family. They will rely on an additional income off the land? Can we do things to make sure that women can rely on land as a source of food provision, for example? Or are women experiencing insecure access to land, such as Rachel Career? One moment she has 
a secure livelihood, source of livelihood, and the next that's called into question and challenged by her male kin. So the ownership question is not the right question. The access question hmm. is. So then tell me about access from a legal standpoint. How do you increase women's access to land? What, what does that look like? This is not just about law. It's about a change in people's perceptions, just as a family might recognize that a woman has looked after her parents in their old age and therefore deserves to be compensated. So it should be recognized by a family that if a woman is relying on land and working this land, she should have some form of secure access to it. Now, that access could take a number of forms. It doesn't have to be just title deed. It can be an understanding amongst people that that is her land to which she must have access. But the requirement, the first thing that's important is for her needs to be recognised and her labour to be recognised. That was Ambrina Manji, Professor of Land, Law and Development at Cardiff University in Wales. She's also the author of The Struggle for Land and Justice in Kenya. She spoke with our senior producer, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum. I thought it was fitting that Ambrina ended her conversation with Laura about access to land. Beyond having the right laws in place, so much about economic empowerment is simply about having access, access to savings, access to a bank account. And for many, access to credit is a big game changer. On our next episode, we explore the world of microfinance, what works, what doesn't, and when done well, how microfinance can transform the lives of low-income women around the world. What microfinance really does is that it allows you to invest not in just your current needs, but also in your future aspirations, which in her case was sending her children to school, building her house, and ultimately having enough savings so that she could buy herself luxuries that she wanted to enjoy. Microfinance is very simple. It's not rocket science. We tell women take money to earn money. And that's it. More on how microfinancing is helping to broaden economic opportunities for women next week. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of foreign policy and made possible through funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and write us a review. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Rena Nainan. Laura Rossbrow Tellum is our senior producer. Rob Sachs, our managing editor. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Rosie Julin, Megan Cattell, Anissa Pezeshki, Zamone Perez, and Dan Efron. Special thanks to Dominic Kirui, who reported about Rachel Career and helped us produce her interview. And a big thanks to Mary Ellen Iskadarian, president and CEO of Women's World Banking. An early conversation with her got us thinking more about property rights. Thanks so much. We'll be back in your feed next week.